Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of Certified Forgotten. We're still your only podcast that talks about films with 10 or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm a professional writer. I feel like there should be a shorter way to say that, but, you know, fuck it. It's fine. It's it's a plenty good lead-in. My name is Matt Monagle. I am one of your hosts. I'm joined, as always, by my friend, my my partner, my business partner, the person that I look up to. Not literally. I'm taller than him. It's Matt Donato. How you doing, buddy? Pretty good. We're staring down the barrel of Fantastic Fest, Beyond Fest, and Brooklyn Horror Fest. So, uh, I don't know. Just, like, calm before the storm. And when I say calm, I mean I still wrote, like, seven reviews last week, so I'm tired. <laughs> How many of those are you actually going to be covering, attending, whatever this year? Uh, Fantastic Fest virtual coverage for Slash Film, Beyond Fest minimal coverage, just fitting a few things in for IGN and Slash, and then Brooklyn Horror attending because we get to hang out at Brooklyn Horror together in person. Oh, what a perfect lead in. That's right. If you, if this is, I mean, if we publish this before <laughs> the end of October, which is never a given with us, but if we, if we do our shit correctly, then uh, we are going to be appearing at this year's Brooklyn Horror Film Festival. Uh, we have a really good screening and panel discussion. You can go to the Brooklyn Horror Festival website for more information or literally just check out any of our social media, mine and Donato's personally or Certified Forgotten's more broadly. We're talking about it all the time. But speaking of Slash Film and things that happen with Slash Film, we have a really cool returning guest today. Yep, I'm going to make it simple. Uh, if you've listened to the, what, what, what else is that? Teenage, why am I blanking on the name? Oh my God. It was episode 22, Teenage Cocktail. Teenage Cocktail. I don't know why I just forgot the name of Teenage Cocktail because I love that film. And it was one of the films that made me kind of like jump into Certified Forgotten and like get that idea flowing. So returning once again is co-host This Ends at Prom and also filmmaker, podcaster, writer, pretty much just social media maven. So uh, BJ Colangelo, welcome back. Hi, hi, hi. Yeah. So BJ, last time we talked to you, um, let me make, I actually want to check and see when the date on that was. It was August, 2020, which was two years and uh, four lifetimes ago. So just to catch people up, the, the, like the one person who's a bigger fan of us than you and has no idea what's going on in your life, uh, just to catch folks up, what, what have, uh, what have you been up to the last two years? What's, uh, what's going on in your world? Huh. Oh, right. So the last time y'all saw me, I was still living in the Midwest. I don't live there anymore. Now I live in Los Angeles, which means that sometimes I get to watch wrestling with Donato, which is very fun and exciting. And mm. sometimes I get to, you know, watch Rogers, the dog also great. Um, but I have just been writing, podcasting, doing, doing all the fun hustle that everyone does when they work in this industry. Yeah, that's amazing. And I mentioned the slash build thing. I know Donato didn't specifically call it out, but uh, I think we're all, it, that's kind of our pivot point. That's our opportunity to share a byline because since you joined the team there as a writer and editor, you've gotten a lot of really, really good coverage. And I've seen a lot of people sharing a lot of the really good articles you read. So for me, it's exciting because I really like slash film. I read slash film. I write for slash film. And I feel like every day you're working on some sort of a really cool editorial tied to what's going on in, in the news world and in the film world that people are sharing and reading. So I kind of think of you when I think of the the direction that the voice of that publication has gone. I really appreciate that. And that does mean a lot to me. I like being able to work at Slash Film because not only do I get to write about horror, which obviously is a huge passion of all of us here, but it also gives me an excuse to have a little bit more fun with a lot of my writing. Uh, today, for example, I wrote about Jason Lannister on House of the Dragon and how he's a big dweeb. And I don't know any other publication that really would have been okay with that sort of a headline. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a really great team that y'all have rocking over there. And 
I know it's been exciting to watch that happen because I know there was a lot of uncertainty. What was it? Eight, 12 months ago, whenever mm-hmm. it was, um, when things started changing. And so I feel like at this point, anytime I see a cool writer that I know, like, uh, you know, Emma Stefanski and others, any, you know, anytime somebody's employment situation changes, the first thing I do is send a DM to Jacob Hall. I'm like, they're in the market, <laughs> go get them. Yeah, absolutely. And Jacob is just, you know, shout out to Jacob Hall. What a wonderful human being you are. Great editor, great person to work for, but also just a wonderful human being. And a very good DM, Jacob. We need to get back to some of that tabletop. That's an aside. Go ahead. Slash Film was actually my first freelance outlet outside of uh, we who got this covered that shall not be named. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think that I think Jacob Hall was literally the first person to kind of reach out and be like, hey, I've seen some of your stuff and uh, I would like to see if you would like to pitch anything to Slash Film. So that is where I kind of, you know branched out i guess to say and kind of like waited the waters of freelance and got things started so just while we all <laughs> that connection has just come full circle in so many ways mm-hmm. yeah the slash film is family um so this week though for for this episode you've brought a special film we're going to talk about it in all kinds of detail in just a few minutes but i wanted to frame the first part of this conversation because if you do if you want to go back and learn a little bit more about bj and the work that she's done and her history as a writer, and especially your journey now from small town, middle America to Los Angeles and everything that kind of comes with that. You can go back and listen to episode 22, Teenage Cocktail. You can definitely go listen to The Sons of Prom, where that is what Harmony and BJ talk about constantly. I encourage you to go do those things. Uh, but this for this episode, I thought we should have a conversation about musicals, because Let's that is go. another one of those things that kind of weaves in and out of the three of our enjoyment of film and outside of film and music and things of that nature. And I'll frame it as, as this BJ, and then I'm gonna let you run with it. I had a, a friend of mine at a party the other night. Um, it's this couple and I know the guy really well and I'm starting to get to know his partner. And he and I were talking about horror films a bunch. And then she and I started talking about musicals and he turned to me and said, Look, explain to me why you're super into like weird trashy horror, but you're also talking about like, you know, uh, uh, why Phantom of the Opera needs to be revived and like, what's the importance of that now that it's ending its Broadway run. And it made me think of that intersection of horror films and musicals seems like something I see a lot in the community. So let's start with you. What, what is that magic connection between the two? All right. So I think that there are two very important factors that have the overlap of horror and musicals. And I do want to point out that there is a meme that has been making its round since the very early days of the internet. I'm talking like E-bombs world pre-YouTube, but it's just a little Venn diagram that says horror on one side, musical theater on the other, and then serial killers in the middle. Um, Mm. Because apparently if you like both, there's something wrong with you. But it makes complete sense to me that there is so much crossover appeal because horror movies and musicals are both very prolific uh, genres of film and just entertainment in general. They are some of the oldest forms we have, so they have a very rich lineage and legacy. But at the same time, they are often dismissed as lesser than, uh, with the few exceptions of you know your your West Side stories. Um, musicals get made fun of; they're treated like a joke, and horror is similar in that. And we even had to create uh, the annoying term of elevated horror to try to differentiate between good quality horror and schlock which i it's ridiculous we know that that's ridiculous but musicals kind of get the same the same feeling so that makes sense to me but also musicals are the same are the the opposite side of the same coin for horror 
in that the situations are often not based in reality, but they are so loaded with just emotion and catharsis to where there is something inside of you that is so strong and so powerful that it's either going to come out of your body like an alien or a monster or a ghost or a song. And I think it just speaks to a lot of those same sensibilities. I think horror and and musicals have a lot more in common than they do differences. Donata, you are like the king of the horror musical in particular. So I want, I want your opinion on this as well. Well, I was literally going back to research a uh, article I wrote for Bloody because I was like, I think I wrote about horror musicals and like underrated horror musicals. And I did for Bloody Disgusting. Um, and I, that is but like BJ already explained it exactly why it's important. I think the intersection there is totally valid. And it's the intersection that like I just like really emotional horror films. And to me, uh, telling a story through lyrics and song is the most kind of like at least for me, it's the most emotional you can get. And, you know, even outside of horror, like I am drawn to stories like Wild Rose and stuff that, you know, take these lyrics that are so meaningful to people and they can impact a narrative journey. And like you're telling a drama that you've seen a thousand times, but it's set to a different rhythm and it's like actually set to background music. So, you know, you put that with horror and you get the upbeat kind of stage theatrical theater setting and these like chipper performers and all these like upbeat songs. And then you layer on gore, you layer on all the like, you know, take strip the innocence away of it and turn it into like a gross slasher. And what's not to love about that? I don't know. Like, you know, watching the devil's carnival, I just, you know, rewatching the devil's carnival today, like put me down a path of like, you know, all these really great underrated horror uh, musicals and just think about like suck and dead and breakfast and all these weirdo <laughs> obscure references to be like, yeah, there's a movie where Jeremy Sisto and some people go to a bed and breakfast zombies attack. And there are country rock stars that sing the narrative interludes. And then when they turn the zombies, they start doing hip hop and like, they're like a, a hip hop, like country band. And why is that not the most fun thing ever? I don't understand. <laughs> I think it also tracks us to why so many horror movies get turned into stage musicals as well, because there are a lot of them. I've been in a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just because like that, th th those sensibilities are just so similar and they're just, they're so fun there. It's really difficult to not have fun. Even if you're feeling so scared that adrenaline that you get like that adrenaline rush that you get feels good it's a good feeling and you get something similar when you're watching a musical when you hear somebody hit a note come out of their body you were not expecting to you get the same kind of hair standing on on the back of your arm sort of situation that you do when you're scared so it's just it's all the same chemicals in your brain it's all those same feelings just coming from a different a different area also, there's no subgenre of horror that I can watch with my mom. And it's like, except for horror <laughs> musicals. So like for me, it was a big moment to show her Anime Apocalypse. And she could make it through that because while it was more graphic maybe than she's used to. And, you know, it, there's some kills in there that she's looking at me like, why are we watching this? But it's because of the song and the soundtrack. And she was able to like attach to that and the emotionality of it all. And like she understood horror in a way that, you know, it wasn't the gross out, you know, disgusting reprehensible genre that she makes it out to be when I'm usually just like talking <laughs> about my movies. But, uh, you know, I think that's a special thing to kind of bridge that gap between, all right, here's your horror film, but we're going to soften it with music you can sing along to. And like, it's catchy and it's important for people that kind of need that as like an introduction to horror maybe. Yeah. And I, I as I think about it, you know, I'm, I was a, a musical theater kid. I did choir all the way through college. I went to college on a music scholarship and for a minute there, I thought that's what I was going to do. And then I was like, wait a second, this is not a viable 
like, this is not a viable career option. I think I'll try and be a film critic instead. And then I abandoned that. And now I'm very happy. But um, it is it is interesting because when I think of, for me, all horror is sort of defined by music. When I think of my favorite horror films, it's impossible for me to separate the score from that. I think of Ravenous and the Michael Nyman and David Alburn score. I think of MMMD's Hagazusa soundtrack. I think of Disaster Piece with It Follows. Like these are all films where the music is so integral to your not only you know the context of scenes and the relationships between characters but the emotional state that you're in they they provide they basically it's a broad gesture that says this is how you should feel at this moment in time and you're like great yeah i'm going to take my cues from you that's awesome and that's always been something that i've loved about musicals too is that they're you know you could describe them as maximalist form of storytelling um they tell you how to feel because the songs are very happy or very sad and sometimes the best uh, musicals and the best shows will play with that but it's nice to sort of be able to take your emotional cues from songwriting and setting i agree completely i mean one of my favorite musicals to show my hand as to the type of person i am is you're in town which is something that's taking down and uh, breaking down the the art of the musical to the mm-hmm. point where even one of the songs, which is really cheerful sounding, but has really bleak lyrics, one of the characters acknowledges it and is like, but the music's so happy. And it calls out the fact that we are often tricked into feeling a certain way because of the music. Oh man, You're in Town has like my favorite duet in the history of musical theater. It's just, it's a good show. I regret I regret not having been able to do more than just like a scenes from a Broadway show workshop of that when I was in college. I would have I have played both Little Becky Two Shoes and Amazing. uh and Miss Pennywise. Amazing. Donata, you're not a secret musical theater kid. Nothing lurking that I didn't know about after fifty episodes or whatever. No, I was never uh, confident enough to do anything on stage as a, uh, you know, whether middle school, high school, any of that stuff. I was watching from afar. I think my my biggest claim the fames of like going to the theater even living in new york i never took advantage of broadway enough so i saw like some of the disney plays uh i saw misery <laughs> starring bruce willis because how was mm. i not gonna see misery starring bruce willis uh and <laughs> uh it was called like puffs like the hufflepuff kind of oh i know puffs broadway musical. <laughs> yeah I, I had fun with that like that's the kind of musical you're gonna get me to otherwise uh you know, I, I went to a few free ones with some friends, and that was about it. I'm not going to out myself as a uh, secret musical theater nerd, unfortunately. That's fair. Well, then I need to, I need to, I'm sorry, I don't mean to like move you over to the side of the conversation, but BJ, I want to hear your favorite shows then. Oh, goodness. You're asking me to choose between children here. Um, so, yeah, I'm a lifer. I've been doing musical theater since I was in second grade. Um, This is a fun little tidbit I'm going to throw out there. Uh, There were not enough kids in the third through fifth grade school to put on a musical. So they started asking second graders and there was a whole PTA meeting because I got a a leading role as a second grader and parents were furious. Um, Hilarious to me. Um, But yeah, my degrees are in musical theater and film theory. So, you know, I made a very wise investment with my money. Great job. uh, 18 year old me with your decision making. But some of my favorite shows, uh, Little Shop of Horror is always going to be kind of at the top for me. Um, it's really hard for a show to unseat that one as my favorite. I think it is a perfect show. <laughs> um, and I will say stage show and movie, both of them are perfect. Um, love them very, very deeply. Um, I like a lot of parody shows. Uh, Reefer Madness is one that I love. I love Cannibal the Musical. I love Evil Dead the Musical. Uh, I love Silence the Musical. These are ones that I 
my whole heart goes. Um, I also love adaptations like Big Fish. I think Big Fish is a really beautiful show. Like I cry every single time I hear the ending. But if we're thinking more, uh, I guess, classic, um, I am a snob that does not like Les Mis, <laughs> uh, but I am a Sondheim bitch for sure. Uh, anything Sondheim has done, I'm on board for. Uh, and I'm also a big Candor and Ebb fan. So Cabaret is a big one. Chicago is a big one. Um, I'm an apologist for Flora the Red Menace, which is uh, Liza Minnelli's very first show that she did on Broadway. Um, th- those are ones that I, I quite like. But a, a major aspect of my liking a show is also whether or not I can be in it. I think that is a natural mm-hmm. instinct yep. for a lot of people that work in the arts, um, which is probably why I don't like claim is that much. Cause I'm like, nah, I'm too fat for the show. I'm never getting in this. I don't give a shit about it. Um, but if there, if there, if there's a part for me, I probably really like it. Um, but I also think that it just says something about how, you know, musical theater does have its problems the same way that any entertainment industry does where it's not always equitable. Um, so if it's a show that a fat person couldn't be in, I have no interest in it. Um, but you know, things I like to think are changing. I think things are getting better. Yeah, I like the the parody. I had the opportunity to see uh, Silence when I lived in New York, and it was playing at the what was it the Donata? You know this one, the downtown. They had the like the uh, Times Times Square. I was like, what was the name oh, of the yeah. scary place? Times Square. It was Times Square. Um, <laughs> but they they put on a production of Silence the musical, and I had out of town friends visiting, and I think that that was like they could not have pictured a better way to have spent a weekend in the city. It was like the perfect thing for them. So I pat myself on the back for that one. But that's a good. That's quite a, a murderer's row of different shows you've listed there. Yeah, it's 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 a wide range. I've also I've been in plenty of shows that like I probably should not have been in. Um, if people can't tell by the everything about me, I've played Tracy Turnblad many times, many many times more than I probably ever should have. But when you're fat and you can belt and dance, uh, that's where they put you. Yeah, I do. I go back to what you say about like I I do find a lot of shows I evaluate based on where my high notes are. If I'm like if if the good songs are just like one or two notes too high for me, then I'm like, hey, fuck this entire show. And Les Mis, <laughs> I've 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 learned songs from Les Mis before and like singing workshops. But I, I'm with you. It doesn't it doesn't really do anything. Like I'll I'll sing empty chairs and empty tables if I have to, or I'll sing stars. But yeah, every time Eponine gets on stage, I'm just like nails on a chalkboard for me. <laughs> Yeah. And I just, I like shows that have a little bit more to say musically, if that makes sense. Like it's Mm -hmm. not hard to write a Les Mis style show. Like that's, it's pretty musical theater 101. If you do something interesting, which is why I like Sondheim so much. If you do something really interesting, then I'm immediately going to be drawn more to it. Like I also really love the Wild Party musical, like a lot. And it's because they have these ridiculous four-part harmonies that like I don't understand why this is the note they've chosen because some people are singing intentionally out of, of, of the harmony and it's just beautiful and just brash and hard to the ears i just love it i also love chess i do have to say that too i am a big chess bitch too (laughs) hell yeah quartet all day every day for sure oh my god if i could listen to elaine page sing like nobody's side every day until i die i'd be fine like i'd be totally fine every single day that i could listen to that song but i think to to bring it back into more horror territory don't know so we're not leaving you too far behind i'm fine i'm just chilling So like one of, you know, one of my favorite shows is uh, Floyd Collins. I don't know. if. Oh, my God. I love Floyd Collins. It's a great show. Put him in a cave. 
but it's it's this it's the show about uh, somebody who basically goes spelunking, thinks he's going to find this undiscovered cave underground, and he gets stuck. And I mean, spoiler alert for a true story that actually happened a hundred years ago: the dude dies, and that's basically the whole show mm-hmm. is him kind of stuck underground and like he's waning enthusiasm. It's this really beautiful folk musical. It uses a lot of arrangements and instrumentation that you don't normally hear from like something that actually played on Broadway. And I'm a I love folk music, so that's why I connected to it. But to bring it back to horror, I think one of the things that I love about the form of musicals is it's, is it's so incredibly versatile. You can have a musical, I mean, we'll talk about The Devil's Carnival in just a minute, but you can have musicals that are steeped in like dark cabaret or like indie folk music, or you can have something like uh, Once, the Irish musical that was just mm-hmm. Glenn Hansard's, or Glenn Hansard, is that his name? Just his music that was repurposed as a musical, or Mamma Mia, which uses all of Abba's songs. And I didn't like until my wife made me watch it like twice. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so wrong. This is perfect. It's just, there's so much versatility of the genre. And I feel like that's something I see a lot of the same in horror is these ideas that like, you're going to take core concepts and you're going to recycle them and play with them. And you're going to change context and setting. And it's the same, if you were to just write it out on paper, you'd be like, it's the same kind of thing. But each one of them can hit differently because I always refer to horror as jazz and that you have a melody and it's not about the melody that you're playing. It's about how you invert that and change it and improvise on it. Musicals, same way. Yeah, I I agree completely. And I think that that versatility exists even within horror musicals. One of my favorite horror musicals, which is painfully never done enough because it's a two-person show is Thrill Me, which is based on the Leopold and Loeb story, which is a very famous murder, but it's a, it's a musical of two men. And for those that don't know the Leopold and Loeb story, if you've seen Rope, you know the Leopold and Loeb story. Congratulations. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> but the music is like so interesting and beautiful, but it's so stripped down because it's small. But then you look at something like Rocky Horror Picture Show, which Mm -hmm. you can have a small cast for that, or you can have a huge cast with a ton of people playing phantoms, and the music is loud, and it's huge, and it's boisterous, and I think that that's really interesting, and not a lot of subgenres of musicals even allow for that, but horror does, baby. Well, I guess technically, I think I have seen a horror musical actually on Broadway uh, or off Broadway. I forget what theater was playing it. But does Young Frankenstein count as like a horror musical? Young Frankenstein totally counts. Okay, then yeah, I have seen an actual horror musical not on a screen and in in a stage area. (laughs) Well, you know, L.A. actually has a pretty, I mean, BJ knows this, but L.A. is a pretty good place to go, especially for like new shows, stuff that's going to find its way maybe to New York in four or five years time. So keep your eyes peeled. You probably are going to find a lot of cool things before they actually, most people are talking about it. And then you can say, Oh, I, I knew about this back when. Um, oh yeah. Jump. I mean, Reefer Madness started in LA. Reefer Madness started in LA. So did Heather's the musical, which they finally did a stage, like a live stage recording of it. That's uh, w- dropped on the Roku channel on Friday, last Friday. What? <laughs> yeah. So you can watch okay. the, the stage adaptation of Heather's the musical, like almost a, a decade after it was, you know, a, a cute little parody musical they were doing in LA and then became one of the most popular shows that's currently done in educational and community settings across the country. I guess like to speak to that versatility though, and like horror musicals on screen and things of that nature, because like we keep talking about like musicals and theater. Um, but like, I, I think the cool thing, at least for me for horror musicals going into it and the musical aspect is you can have the ones that play off of Sondheim and play off of like the casual, regular kind of like musical structure. And then you have the ones like stage fright for me, uh, stage fright, the 2014 one, 
about the theater kid camp and oh yeah like with meatloaf uh yes beautiful. With meatloaf and like the metal killer and for me like i am the metal guy like that is the kind of music i listen mm-hmm. to i love anything from 80s hair metal to like new synth wave metal that is just like stuff my friends look at me like what the fuck are you this doing? is I'm why like, you and i get along yeah exactly so like <laughs> it's the bridging of the gaps of like i can watch that with my theater kid friends and i have shown it to plenty of them and they look at me afterwards and they're like that is a perfect satire. That is exactly what it's like. Yes. But I'm, a, I'm able to be in it as like the metalhead and get my side of it too. And like, again, the entry point of music being the thing that brings people together. And, you know, I just love that element over and over again, because uh, another favorite for me is suck. And I know it doesn't get a lot of attention, but like, it's a little like Toronto, I think Canadian uh, horror film about rock stars who turn into vampires. And the cast is littered with like Alice Cooper, Moby, uh, Henry Rollins, Iggy Pop. And it is so just cool for me to watch that as a fan of the music itself and then you throw in the heart the vampires and when you hit all of those notes at the same time i to me like it's the best kind of horror experience and you know how much Mm -hmm. i love midnighters you know how much i love my grindhouse and stuff like that but like when you get all that together to a soundtrack and music i i don't know if there's a better feeling like as a horror fan at least personally for me well let me ask this before there's the last question before we kind of go into the devil's carnival then um if someone is listening to this and they say, all right, I like, I get it. I like the weird shit. I'm, I'm with you guys on, on the horror stuff, but I'm still, because I had a, a weirdly a discussion a couple of weeks ago where I, a couple of people sat down and were like, let me tell you why I don't like musicals specifically. And I was like, you were preaching the wrong choir, but like, okay, go ahead. <laughs> uh, what, what are some, like, what do you think both of you at varying degrees of experience, what do you think are like good kind of like entry vectors for horror fans? And they can be stage shows. They can be live recordings. They can be, animated movies whatever they look like that might be if i'm a horror fan and i like music but i don't know about musicals what's maybe something i can try to get into it you can't say devil's carnival because that's the, the episode we're doing it's a little shop like it's it's a little shop for me the because the music is just contemporary enough that it sounds like something that people are into um if you're watching the film you have some of the greatest puppetry you've ever seen in your entire life uh Mm -hmm. you have an amazing performance by rick moranis you get your fun uh, easily identifiable celebrity cameos with bill murray and steve martin um but then you get ellen green and ellen green is a broadway hard b broadway singer and it just is phenomenal and it's a perfect entryway because it just makes you feel good like you feel good after you've watched Little Shop and I think it is a perfect gateway and then you can lean into some other stuff like hmm so what do you know about Sweeney Todd not the you know not the Tim Burton one uh (laughs) take someone to go see a Sweeney Todd um and I think that that uh that that is a, a good pipeline or you know go with one of the go with one of the parody shows uh specifically probably the stronger ones which are Evil Dead and Silence are the two best ones, in my opinion, in terms of horror parodies. Like, you think the Texas Chainsaw musical is going to be what you want, and then it is so, like, left field from what the movie actually is that you're like, what am I watching? Um, but it is it is still kind of great. Um, I'm also a big fan of Zombie Prom, which is done in a lot of high schools. Uh, the music is very 50s doo-wop, but it's very fun. Um, that's also an easy one. Donato, I feel like I, I cued you up just to talk about Anna. So come on. Well, I mean, yeah. So I, I, like Anna, the apocalypse is an easy one because it bridges the zombie kind of madness that overtook for a while and it gives it in a Christmas horror musical setting. So I, I think that's a really good entry point because of the emotional notes it hits throughout and it actually tells a really impassionate story. 
But, uh, you know, like I do fall back on stage fright, which I mentioned before. Uh, I just think it delivers everything that like both sides of the musical fandom can can kind of latch on to in the sense that, again, mm-hmm. any theater kid who's watching it understands where those songs are coming from and where the commentary is. But at the same time, like the metalheads and all the other kind of appreciators on the outside can have that ant- entry point because the metalhead is an outsider. He's against all the theater culture that's going on. So I do hold that pretty high. Um, and uh, like really as kind of a joke answer, but also not like one of the few trauma bred movies I will defend is Poultry Geist. Oh, Poultry Geist. <laughs> it's listen, it's a hot mess, but it is a it's a really fun midnighter and it does so through musicals like, like it, it is an mm-hmm. entire like they build a fast food restaurant on top of, you know, a burial ground and everything gets haunted and people's heads go into fryers and the practical effects are amazing and people start turning into chicken zombies it's bonkers on a trauma level that I appreciate and that doesn't happen very often. Um, so like, you know, when later trauma kind of really became more edgelordy and things like that, I don't like a lot of those, but poultry guy still stands out to me. And I, I, it's bonkers. It's crazy. I know it's probably more extreme than a lot of people would want, but if you are an extreme horror fan, I think poultry guys does show you that like a horror musical doesn't have to be a certain thing. It doesn't have to be what you're probably envisioning it as like poultry guys says, no, fuck you. We're going to give you the hardcore midnighter, but we're also going to write some songs about it and you're going to fucking learn something. (laughs) I do have one more suggestion and this is for the push up your glasses cinephiles who look down upon musicals. Brian De Palma made a musical, made a horror musical. Phantom of the Paradise is art. I know this is an audio medium, so people can't see it behind me, but there's a reason that it adorns my walls behind me in this room we're sitting in right now, because you got Paul Williams music. Are you going to tell me that you're better than the guy who wrote Rainbow Connection? Because you're not. You're fucking not. Phantom of the Paradise rules. Also, Monagal, I think this is your chance to bring up. Are, are you are going to already? Are you, were you going to ask me about Todd? The book of, of course Pure I Evil? was. Yes. Yay! The musical episode of Todd uh, versus the book of pure evil is not only one of the hands down the greatest musical episode of a television show that I've seen, uh, but it really it's it's the perfect synthesis of like horror and rock and a little bit of metal. It's just it's just fun. And if, if you have never heard that, if you've never heard of Todd versus the book of pure evil, if you've never you know, go to go to whatever streaming music title, Spotify, whatever. Check it out. I think it's on the second volume that they released first, second volume, second season. Just listen to the songs. If you're not hooked after the songs, you won't want to watch the show, but it's flawless and you should be. Also, you should watch the show because it's double mat approved. One of the few things that is double mat approved. Todd, Todd, is it verses or and? I can never remember. Todd, Todd, etc. The, the book Pure Evil is the most double mat approved thing that we have ever talked about <laughs> on the show. Like that, it is that is it's the most of both of us, and I love it for that. And and to add to that, Melanie Leishman is in both Todd and the Book of Pure Evil and Stage Fright, <laughs> the redhead that soprano that could. Yep. God bless Canadians. Stand out, absolute star. Uh. All right, we have proven, I think, beyond a shadow of a doubt, our bonafide to talk about a horror musical on this week's episode. So when we come back, we are going to visit the Devil's Carnival. We'll be right back.
Well, hey, everyone. We just want to take a second, as always, and say thank you to our patrons. This past month has been a little bit of a pause for us. We reworked some behind the scenes, but I'm really going to fucking love it. We think you're going to like it so much, and we think you're going to be so excited at kind of the new mix of, uh, I hate to use the word content because that's a dirty word, but the, the new mix of, of tiers that we're going to be offering folks. I'm very excited that I get to give you a little lesson into, I don't even know what to do. Like, I don't want to say it's like grotesque cinema. It's just obscure cinema, I would say. I'm going to push your boundaries a little bit, and that's going to be one of the new Patreon tiers. It's Donato's Film School in a way. And mm -hmm. I'm going to make Mr. Monagle uh, start rifling through movies like Tokyo Gore Police, Red, White, and Blue. I'm not going to make you go into like a Serbian film because I really do want you to genuinely unpack oh, yeah. these movies. I want to show you things that you might actually like. So... I'm really I'm curious to see where we go in this, in this journey, let's call it. No, there are many films over the years that I have read the synopsis and been like, absolutely not, that I know are considered classics of the genre or, you know, cult classics, if not that. So I'm with you. I think it's going to be really exciting to have a reason to go watch the movies that I have made, that I've decided I'm not going to watch. And I'm going to love some of them and I'm going to truly hate some of them. And we'll we'll figure out which is which together. I will do my best to do the love as much as possible, but every once in a while you're going to get a septic man, and I'm sorry. That's fair. I understand that. And hey, speaking of fun things that Donato and I are doing together, we also want to let you know that we are going to be appearing at this year's Brooklyn Horror Film Festival. This will be our third podcast recording as part of a horror or part of a genre film festival. This is our first in person, and on Sunday, October 16th at 1:15 p.m. Eastern Time, we're going to be at the Williamsburg Cinema presenting Jack Be Nimble which is a 1993 Kiwi horror film. We're going to do a screening uh, co-presented and sponsored by Dark Sky Films. And then we're going to be talking to MoMA curators, Karen Coleman and Ron Magliazzi about the film, about the history. It's going to be a live podcast recording. You know how it works. So we would love, if you're in the New York area and you want to buy tickets at Brooklyn Horde's website, then uh, I would recommend you do that and come hang with us for a bit. Yeah, come out, support, do all the good things. And I can't sing the praises of Brooklyn Horror as a festival enough anyway, uh, so much so that I I love Fantastic Fest and do wish I could be there this year, but I chose to go to Brooklyn Horror. And I haven't been to Brooklyn Horror since like 2018, 2017, whatever year that was. So that is my vote of confidence. If you're ever thinking about checking out Brooklyn Horror, it is, uh, it's one of my up-and-coming favorite festivals. and Not even up-and-coming anymore, I shouldn't say that, because they've been around plenty yeah. long enough and proving exactly what their worth is. Yeah, we've had uh, we've had Matt Barone, um, who helps run the festival, uh, as a guest on this show. His taste is impeccable. Sometimes we we, did, we didn't love the movie brought to us, but uh, we cannot speak enough for the programming and the quality of the effort they put in. And I honestly, I'm just excited to go back to Brooklyn because the last time I was in Brooklyn, there was only one Nighthawk, and now there's two. How weird is that? Are we gonna eat good pizza? Oh, we fucking better eat good pizza. I am I am in the city myself that weekend, so I'm just going for pizza, booze, and horror. That's all I want. Two mats, a horror fest, and a pizza place. Two mats on a mission. And on that note, let's get back to the show. Okay, welcome back. So today on the Certified Forgotten Podcast, we are going to be talking about The Devil's Carnival, which is a 2012 musical horror film directed by Darren Lynn Bousman. Normally I write like a thing. I tell you who's in it. I talk about kind of the vague plot. I am the last person 
to come to this film and our little trio of uh, music, horror musical aficionados today. So I'm not going to I'm not going to do the sales pitch. I'm going to ask one of you to sort of lay the groundwork uh, for the Devil's Carnival in whatever way you see fit. Talk about the cast, the, the filmmaker, the past work. Uh, give your sales pitch for why somebody should pause the episode right here and go watch this on Pluto TV. It's only 55 minutes. That's the only part I'll add. How are you not plugging Tubi here? Tubi, come on, we're Tubi, Tubi fans. It's on Tubi. I, Hell yeah, I, it's well, on it's Tubi. Also, I didn't know that. I saw it on Pluto on the like the thing I pulled up. So sorry, Tubi. It's on Tubi uh, and Pluto <laughs> if that's it. But sell our audience. Why should they hit pause and go watch it? One of you right now. What's the what's the what's the deal with the film? All right. So this is the pitch that I give to people on this. So you know how all of us are huge fans of people like Robert Pattinson and uh, Daniel Radcliffe doing these big franchises and then taking all that money to do all of their weird projects that they wouldn't get funded otherwise. This is the director's version of that because Darren Lynn Bowsman, uh, most people know him from working on films like Saw 2 and 3. Um, so yeah, big Saw franchise person. And then he took the money he got from saw and went i'm making weirdo musicals because i feel like it and obviously repo the genetic opera was a massive one hugely popular in the aughts especially if you were a kid that shopped at hot topic like i was uh came out right at the peak of like my chem like he really like could not have picked a more perfect time for repo but as much as repo was beloved and became a cult hit it was not really financially viable but that's not going to stop him darren was like you know what i'm getting the band back together he got some of the people from repo back to together and they made the devil's carnival it looks like it was shot in a black box theater stage it is dealing with elements of religion set under a carnival theme emily autumn is here the music is really catchy and it is visually striking and it is only 56 minutes you get in you get out no intermission beautiful perfect so hit pause go watch it on tubi and welcome back again Let's talk about the Devil's Carnival. And let's actually, let's let's start, because you brought it up, BJ, and as somebody who also discovered Repo the Genetic Opera in high school and had a very long dalliance with it, um, which was probably Sarah Brightman's fault, honestly, if I'm thinking <laughs> about it. Uh, that name is going to mean something to a lot of different folks. I think even if you don't know the Devil's Carnival, you probably saw Repo because it was sort of like, the the last biggest push of the direct-to-video market or like the home video market. I think that was, when I think of like the movies that I rented and I was like, oh my gosh, that was one of the last things that I remember seeing where I was aware that this is something that existed sort of between like big movies and stuff that I would watch at home. So folks might want to start with that one. What is it about Repo? I assume you saw that one first. What was it about Repo, the genetic opera that made you kind of gravitate towards Bowsman and his writing partner and kind of the film, the films and musicals that they wanted to make. Repo the Genetic Opera spoke to my specific experience in the aughts in a way that a lot of aughts horror could not. I'm a big apologist for aughts horror, but it didn't connect with me on a personal level the way something like Repo did because Repo is really edgy, it's really dark, but it's still very fun and very stylized. Um, it's very goth, it's very emo, very punk. Like there's just that aesthetic works a lot more for me than what I would describe as like the white tank top horror era of the aughts because mm. every final girl wears a white tank top in those movies. Um, so something like Repo was really exciting to me, but also it's so camp. And I remember people being like, how could you like that movie? It has Paris Hilton in it. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This is the best casting possible. Paris Hilton is expertly 
literally cast in this movie. This is fantastic. Um, we also have Anthony Heed from uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer uh, being actually utilized uh, in a way that he is not in the in Once More with Feeling episode of Buffy. That's my only knock on that musical episode is that he's Giles is not given enough to do and that man can sang. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so Repo just really connected with me and I was very fortunate that I got to see it when they were taking it from theaters to theaters around the country and doing uh, sort of like Rocky Horror performances with it where you would show the movie, people would come in costumes, there would be crowd interactions and it was really exciting. And I'm a, I'm a diehard Rocky Horror kid. I was in a shadow cast before and being able to have that experience again for something that wasn't Rocky Horror and share that communal bonding with a lot of people was really important to me as a teenager. I have to admit too, when I sat down and put on the devil's carnival, I, I normally I'll like glance at like casting crew and things of that nature. And I was like, I didn't do that. I just sort of like turned it on because I'd had a long day and I was like, I want to make sure I watch this tonight so I can think about it. And I did not make the connection between this and repo until the opening credits started rolling. And I was like, Oh, Paul Sorvino. Oh, Bill Mosley. This is the repo guy. This is yes. going to be the repo guy. <laughs> so I, that's my confession is it took me a minute to actually realize that, that it was the same, basically the same everybody in this is, is repo, which I thought was really fun. Absolutely. And when Paul Sorvino passed, rest his soul, um, I wrote a piece for Slash Film specifically about Darren Lynn Bossman using him in musicals because Paul Sorvino is a classically trained opera singer and he did not get to utilize that in film in a way that he probably should have, but he did with these. I mean, he gets to, he gets to play Papa Largo. And then, then in these movies, uh, cause you know, there is a sequel to the devil's carnival. Um, but he plays God. Anybody who says, hi, Paul Sorvino, you get to play God and you get to sing. That's the correct decision to have been made. Mm. Let's talk about the musical stylings a little bit um, as kind of a, a first blush with the Devil's Carnival. And I, I guess it connects to Repo, too. Um, you know, there is I, I won't pretend to be super well versed in, in music and counterculture, but mid to late 2000s, early 2010s, there was sort of a resurgence of burlesque and Weimar era Germany influence. And I believe it's called Dark Cabaret mm-hmm. was sort of the mode of, of music. And there were a lot of musicians working in that, especially in New York City. If you know Amanda Palmer, the Dresden Dolls, obviously probably the most famous example of that, but they were kind of operating in this cabaret style throwback mode of, of music making. And that is something that, and I, I, I apologize, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Terrence Zdunik, um, I the think writer. It's Zundik, Zundik, but I could be wrong. Terrence, our boy Terrence, who is the uh, really uh, Bowsman's creative partner in, in all three of these films and the musical writer and a major character in these, kind of the mode in which they want to operate. So um, BJ, I'm going to throw it to you again, and then Donato, I'll, I'll ask you kind of a question after that. But what uh, what type of music, I guess, are, are folks in for? If you haven't sat down to watch either of these films and you're sitting down, you know, what should you expect musically in terms of the types of songs, the genres of the songs, things of that nature? The best way that I can describe the music in this is if you have ever seen any sort of like vaudeville show, even if it's Looney Tunes, think about that if it was written by somebody who had a lot of depression. Like that's sort of what we're playing with here. Um, Because even the songs that are really uplifting sounding have really dark lyrics and the songs that are extremely dark may have really happy and joyful lyrics. It's very theatrical. Um, But yes, it's definitely vaudeville through the lens of the girl who writes sad poetry in the back of the room. Nice. Uh, 
Donato, I'm going to ask you to talk about the other piece of this, which is the film's framing device is sort of Aesop's fables, but it's also about three characters that descend into hell uh, and are sort of punished slash taught a lesson slash gleefully overcome by hell's little uh, uh, carnies. For like, I was just saying hell's carnies. Hell's carnies have an opportunity to really shine. You are like clown carnival horror stuff madhouse funhouse stuff that's another thing that i think of when i think of you so talk a little bit about how that plays out over the course of the movie well the way it plays out and like what attracts me to the devil's carnival especially because like the fun fact for this was like i came to bj with this episode because i wanted to do it really badly and i remember bj saying like he was like yeah no i we talked about the devil's carnival a while ago but i was you know looking at movies that we can cover on the podcast and i was like devil's carnival stuck with me for so long and kind of the arc that is these sinners, you know, going to hell, as you've already explained, and being taught their lessons. And but the separation between saints and sinners is so very thin. And the way that Bousman and the entire like the entire cast is kind of playing their carnival aspect up so gaudily and so eccentrically. The vaudeville aspect is such a good comparison. Uh, but to me, it's the most fun because it's people who don't usually do that. Uh, the bands represented throughout this film alone range Slipknot to the Sick Puppies to Five Finger De- Death Punch. And I, what grounds me in these moments and these really kind of off the cuff musical numbers that don't seem to fit the tone. But at the same time, as BJ said, the lyrics are so very cutting and so very like tragic as you listen to them. And like, it's hell. You think that it's just about torture and punishment and, you know, it's not gleeful in a way. Like we've seen depictions of hell just being the pitchforks. And uh, I guess the glee would be coming from the violence that that occurs. But no, like these are musical numbers. Like Bill Mosley in the beginning is the magician, like almost gets put in his place because he's like, I want to do it. And it's like, well, are you going to take Lucifer's spot? Because Lucifer wants to sing tonight. And it's like, it's just very puppety. It's very... going i can't say vaudeville again so i'm trying to think of a different way to say it but like (laughs) the looney tunes comparison as well you're getting these random sound effects thrown throughout that are like cartoonish and i it just fits really well like ivan moody to me five finger death punch this isn't the movie i would see him being the hobo clown in and he sings this really somber song about having nothing and the person who takes that for granted and things of that nature so To me, I'm just drawn to the fact that it's a lot of people escaping their comfort zones and to speak especially to the three people who we focus on, the three main characters and the way they find themselves throughout hell and, you know, whether they get a pass to heaven or their souls are condemned forever. It's really emotional. I, I, I am kind of really moved by a lot of these. And I love, I need to watch the sequel because I, I was looking through the the cast and I was like, oh, Tech Nine. Like speaking of artists. Yo. Yeah, like, yeah. And I was like, okay. I'm making you I, do I, the second one eventually because Tech Nine, know, hell I yeah. Yeah, I, he's, he, all of the songs on my running playlist are Tech Nine. So I'm very, very excited about that. But yeah, this is this is such a unique um, a unique film, and I I found myself my like I was kind of trying to find different places to place it in my head. I thought of while I was watching it, I thought of Jekyll and Hyde, the Broadway musical, which is very fun and has kind of the same energy. Mm-hmm. I thought of Ink, that late two thousands. I can't remember the name of the director, Jamie Winans Winans, um, about the man who dies and is sort of like having to usher his daughter through hell that he doesn't know about a spoiler alert for ink, I guess. And it, it's, it's decidedly of, a of that period. Like it feels for something that is, is so 
steeped in like, I'm going to use vaudeville because that's the, that's the word of the day. Something that's so steeped in vaudeville, it also feels like undeniably of like that late 2000s, early 2010 period in a way that I kind of like adore. I hope that this is something that becomes influential and people point to this as sort of like a stylistic reference point. Because if you were to ask if somebody was like, oh, what was, you know, what was like horror and culture and all like, I'm like, ah, I'm just going to show you the devil's carnival. It's too, it's too confusing to try and explain it otherwise. Yeah, I've definitely used um, both Repo and The Devil's Carnival to explain when people say like, well, what were you like in high school or what were you like in your early 20s? And I'm like this, this is what I was Mm -hmm. super into. I was studying musical theater and everything in my audition book came from horror musicals. Like I'm one of the few people who actually owns officially licensed sheet music from Phantom of the Paradise because I tweeted about it so incessantly that one of them finally sent it to me. Um, Like, so this really captures my essence and this speaks to me on like a very personal level because there are so many like weird alt kids that love musicals, but we've never had a show outside of like Rocky Horror. And I think it's because for many years, people didn't want to make these like dark and edgy shows thinking, oh, the comparisons to Rocky Horror are going to be inevitable and we're not going to be able to escape that, which is something that we saw when this movie came out. Uh, same thing with Repo. The Everybody compared it to Rocky Horror, which is ridiculous because they're not even close to being the same sort of thing. You just saw songs and decided to lump it together. People do have animation too, but that's an entirely different sidebar. Um, but Songs and fishnets and it's either Cabaret or Rocky Horror. Right, exactly. When it's like, they're doing totally the same medium, way different movies. Um, but this, this world captures a part of that counterculture that never really gets brought up when we're talking about kind of like that Y2K existence because this is about the time where dominant culture starts to split like when you talk about movies from the 70s or movies from the 80s for the most part there's a very common cultural language because everybody was watching the same tv shows was listening to the same music on the radio once we get into the later 2000s into the 2010s we start having more microcultures than ever before. So a lot of people who were really into some of like the popular things in the aughts, um, they were not watching the same things that I was. So there's a lot of people that don't even know this movie exists because of that reason. Yeah, it's and it's an interesting cast too, because on, on a first blush, if you weren't, you know, if, if you don't know the filmmaker, you don't know Repo, you don't know those kind of things, it feels now looking back on it, you'd be like, oh, this is just another like, somebody's rounding up all of their the horror icons that they loved in the 1970s right because you've got a couple of a couple of those people in the cast um certainly anything with bill mosley you know immediately you're going to be like oh great so you're just going for like you know texas chainsaw vibes but i think what's what's interesting about the devil's carnival is not only kind of the quality of the performances that that they give because these are really talented actors but truly this is this is the kind of thing where Bousman just loves these performers and loves giving them opportunities to shine. And like, God bless Dayton Callie. I love him in Deadwood. This, he is more interesting in this than he ever was in Deadwood because he gets more to do. And I think that's lovely. I agree. And I also think that the music is also written much better for the vocalist that he has Mm -hmm. compared to repo. Um, And obviously we don't want to just spend the whole time comparing the two movies, but like Alexa Vega singing kiss the girls in this is better than anything she does in repo because this song is so clearly written to play to her strengths, which is a bratty belter. And I love that. And I think that she sounds fantastic. She's so much fun to watch because like, this is the part she was meant to play in my opinion. 
Yeah, I was actually going to bring up Brianna Evigan. Like, it hilarious, just like the casting of there. But like Sean Patrick Flannery, he doesn't have to do much singing, but he just works so well as the father who is just trying to find his son in hell. And there is this element of just humanity through it all that is so interesting to me because without spoiling, you know, the Devil's Carnival too, but like hell is this carnival where all these carnies are giving people the opportunity uh, to kind of find themselves and either find a way to heaven uh, or stay there forever through song, through temptation, mm-hmm. through all these things that you'd expect from demons and imps and things of that nature. But like the devil is sitting there reading Aesop's fables and going like, let's see how this person gets out this time. Like he's not the devil in the sense that it is the clear cut, you know, Christian Catholic way of devil, bad God, good. Because in the second one, we find out that heaven is a corporation and it's run exactly like a corporation in a business and the duality of both of those. And the way that we, I think the way that the film approaches religion and like, you know, what we believe and how maybe the black and white is just so much more gray than we think. You wouldn't expect that from a movie titled The Devil's Carnival, which is about everything we described so far. I think that is so interesting about this film. And that's the thought that goes into not only the songs, but the presentation of what's happening, because it is such an immersive world and it is so low budget. And as BJ said, it's, it looks like it's shot just on a little black box theater. Like that is the vibe this entire film. But I feel so much more connected to this movie than I do. I, I can't tell you how many other films would like double the triple the budget. I mean, triple the budget would only get it to 1.5 million, according to Esther. Right. But that's, you're still, that's nothing at all, really. And I'm glad that you brought up the aspects of religion, because something that I had mentioned um, to Donato, like off mic earlier today, is that there was a stage play that I was in in high school called JB, and uh, the author... Archibald McLeish, that's his name. Uh, it's from the 50s, but it is a it's the book of Job um, from the Bible. And it presents God and the devil as the ringmasters and everybody inside dealing like so Job and his wife Sarah and the kids and whatever, and all of the the things that ruin Job's life. Cause I don't know if you've read the Bible, but the book of Job is depressing as hell. Yeah. Um, but they are all the circus performers, and it's basically setting up like this big allegory of like what is religion other than just a giant show? It's the greatest show on earth, so to speak. Um, And I have always found that really fascinating because I obviously was in that play in high school and then the devil's carnival came out years later. And that has always really stuck with me is this idea of kind of taking apart religion by presenting it in this new form, which is a carnival. It's something that's supposed to be fun, but you know, once you kind of learn about how the sausage is made, once you know what Barnum and Bailey were really doing with some of those animals, uh, it stops mm-hmm. being fun. And I think that's really fascinating. And I think that the Devil's Carnival handles that really, really well. And I say this as somebody who's not religious. Um, and I like the idea that, you know, these religious themes are also set up against like Aesop's fables, um, which are not religious. They're just morality tales. And it's kind of forcing you to ask like, well, are these really that different? And I think that's a really provocative thing to include in a 55 minute movie. And everything feels full. Like the, the three main characters we follow, like one dies because they're a greedy thief and they want to keep all of the, you know, jewels and, uh, you know, everything they've come to inherit in their bounty and like through their crimes, but they die because they're surrounded by police. And that's how they end up there. Uh, Another is a woman who is killed by her lover because she keeps, you know, going with men who are unfortunately, you know, going to do that. And that is her test. She is given uh, Mark Centaur is like the scorpion and she has to either 
reject his charms or not. And then you're given Sean Practor Flannery, who is there because he has killed himself. And, you know, he's trying to find his child. And we are thinking the child's now left alone up there. But it is something much darker and more tragic. And the way that they're able to explore all of those themes and each one has its own main stage song, let's say. Um, and that is how they come to either terms with what they've done or they continue to make the same mistakes and the way in which it happens and the costumes and, you know, everyone is so unique. Every single player like Emily Autumn is the painted doll looks fantastic in the way that like her mm-hmm. face is cracking like a porcelain doll. Um, Ogre as the snake is this reptilian creature that can also, you know, transform it, there is so much bang for your buck uh, budget wise in the devil's carnival that like, I don't even understand how it comes together like that because I'm, I'm going to be honest. Like there are some other visual effects which are te- terrible. Like once we get into like the computerized graphics, yeah, it doesn't look amazing. Some like fire effects and things here and there, but costumes, production design, everything that goes into building Lucifer's carnival and especially Terrence's costume as Lucifer. Like I don't understand how Terrence isn't a bigger deal uh, in many circles because his voice his creation his like creative intent through this entire uh you know backbone i guess to say because he's written everything for darren and like darren is oversight as director like i am so impressed by this stuff especially when he has a massive fan base of people who are really thirsty for the grave robber and rebo which is something that he plays (laughs) so like he looks great and terrifying as the devil, but there are a lot of people who want yeah. to get with the grave robber. Yep. I, and I like earlier, BJ, when you were talking about religion, I think that that's, I, I like that you called that out because as somebody who grew up very, very Catholic, and as we've talked about on the show, my dad is a deacon, like my family's still super religious. Um, one of the things that I've carried forward with me from that experience is sort of a morbid obsession with like those in between stages after death, right? Because as a kid, you're learning about purgatory and you're like, heaven is good, hell is bad. And purgatory is like, well, we, you know, you may be there forever, who knows? Which makes it so much more terrifying than hell because at least hell, you kind of have a sense of it. So there's a lot of, you know, stories that sort of barter in those in between spaces. Everything from like what dreams may come to, to Silent Hill or varying degrees of like liminal states and what happens to you after you die or, you know, what happens to you after you're, you're lost. Uh, and I love this setting in this film of kind of playing with that because it's just for as much as as many films that have sort of toyed with it it's just such rich territory like the intersections of different religions and belief structures and what you believe happens to you after you die and those places for those that were like you know not too good not too bad and and what that means we could make a million movies uh, uh, about the afterlife and the interpretations of the afterlife and what it means, what your next steps are. And I don't think I would ever, ever be full of that. So it's, it's such a a fascinating and and a juxtaposition to what both of you said about having that be like a carnival environment, which is like very fun, but also weirdly sad in a way that's hard to articulate. You never feel really great at the end of a carnival. You're always sort of like, this was fun an hour ago. And now I've, I feel bad and I kind of want to go home. And if you ask me why I can't quite articulate it. It's it's just it's the perfect setting for that kind of story. Well, how does so? I mean, this is I recommended this to you because I feel like this mm-hmm. is your shit in a way. It's a musical. It's theology. It's everything that kind of plays into your hand. So like turning it back on you, like I was excited for you to jump into this because I wanted to hear yeah. what you had to say on those things. Like, how do you th- how do you feel the Devil's Carnival deals with that stuff in comparison to other films, maybe or comparison like to your upbringing as well? 
You know, I, it's, it's a good question. I, it has a lot of the things that I like about it. I think there are some things about it that are, that are a little rough. Um, and musically, I think I look for a little bit more cohesion in a show and, and these songs are, are a little less cohesive, which is not at all a knock on, on this. It's really more of like, almost like a, a songbook, a collection of things than it is like, you know, a, a tried and true musical. Um, I think, I think I'm, I'm the performance of Terrence last name to be pronounced um, as the devil. I think that the way that they're playing with like the, the duality of, of light and dark, I think, there is there's so much here that even having just watched it and having it be short that I I find myself thinking about a day later that I kind of want to go back to immediately afterwards. I was like, I didn't, I didn't know. Like, honestly, the thing for me was like, I didn't know if there was a song that was going to get stuck in my head. And if I don't have a song stuck in my head after a musical, I'm kind of like, and then I found myself it's on Spotify, the entire musicals on Spotify. So I was kind of going through a little bit and listening. And there were a few songs that I found myself listening to more often. So I, I think it's going to be, I think this would have ruined me at like 17 years old. I think I would never stop being obsessed about this if I'd seen it at 17. And at 38, I think I like it. And I'm just sort of navigating and picking out what I like a little bit more about it. If that makes sense. I think that's more than fair because I feel like part of why I gravitate towards both of these both the trilogy of Darren Lambeau's musicals is because mm-hmm. they did hit me at like a real sweet spot. Um, but I'm curious, what songs are the ones that you listen to the most? Oh, now you're going to make me pull up Spotify. Uh, put on hold music. Well, here's all right, here. I think here's my hot take. I, I think, can't remember any of song titles. Well, I was going to say, I think the best song is the one they don't even use in the actual movie. And they say, in all the my credits. dreams, I drown. Yes. Yes. So that is good. the best song in the whole show. <laughs> And it's just the it's the credit song because they don't actually put it in there like that. That's bonkers to me. But I think for me, actually, I my favorite is going to be Ivan Moody's uh, song as the the hobo clown, and just mm-hmm. the way that he is able to use his kind of like booming voice. And if you've heard a penny, I've got it open now. A penny for a tail is the title of that song. Yep, a penny for a tail, and just the way that I. I don't really listen to Five Finger anymore because they got weirdly right wing and Ivan has denounced that he knew they were going to. I don't know. It's a really weird fucking story. I don't listen to him anymore, but I used to listen to Five Finger a lot and they were a very punch you in the face, hardcore metal band. Uh, and his vocals were the gravelly, the screamy and the not so beautiful, let's say. So then to hear him sing in in the way as the hobo clown and to hear how gorgeous his voice can sound like i was just blown away i I think that was one of those times where i'm just like to go back to what i was saying before these are these are performers who are going out of their comfort zone and enjoying the hell out of it and being like i don't get to do this that often i'm gonna rock it for this weirdo little obscure horror comedy to answer your question bj kind of looking through this list again um i i have no i've never i mean i think she was in repo so i might be wrong but amelia autumn is not a talent that, that i know of so i'm i don't have any like don't know her music so the one that i would probably pick is prick goes the scorpion's tail is the one that i keep coming back to because i think that that's fun and evolving and there's like a, a refrain which is easy for me to wrap my head around um and those are kind of the reasons that i gravitated towards it so that's the one when i found myself going back and like tabbing back a lot on the playlist. It was when I wanted to listen to that song a couple of times. Beautiful. So Emily Adam is not in repo, but she is in this one. And she's one of the main figureheads of kind of this dark cabaret movement alongside mm-hmm. with Amanda Palmer. But that does unfortunately mean that like Amanda Palmer, Emily Adam is also gotten a little problematic in the most recent years, which, you know, makes it harder to navigate her music. Cause 
the one-two punch, I think, of trust me uh, into Prick Goes the Scorpion's Tale is such a fantastic, like that chunk yep. of the movie right there is just pretty untouchable and wonderful. And uh, God, she's so talented. <laughs> I hate when people who are problematic are talented, but damn, yep. she's good. <laughs> well, and also Mark Centaur as the, as the Scorpion. I, I'd only seen Centaur in like indie horror films. I'm not on stage, not doing any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I was, I, I was very taken by that song as well. Just again, seeing somebody who I'm like, I've seen you probably die in a horror movie or I've seen mm-hmm. you be like the skeezy killer. And now you are doing this fantastic greaser kind of vibe with, I, and again, going to costumes, the scorpions look of the Ken doll, uh, like aesthetic, but like, he is like an undead greaser is yes. so good. It's That's very perfect. good. And yeah, I saw, this was my introduction to him. So then when I would see him pop up in other like indie horror movies, like I know he's in uh, starry eyes, which is a movie I love deeply. I was like, Oh, it's the scorpion. And everyone's like, you're a crazy person. What are you talking about? Well, I think we've gotten to the part of the show where we can talk a little bit about the, um, the legacy of this, I think, cause we, we know that it's on Pluto. We know that it's on Tubi. Um, and the soundtrack is on Spotify, which honestly is not no small thing these days that they're, you know, if, that you can find um, for anything that you like, that you can find something on streaming because I feel like that's not a guarantee. So let's start uh, with you, Donato, because I know you were you the one that was really excited and you kind of put this on the plate for us today. Last question we always ask on the podcast is how does this find its audience and how does this kind of like take that next step to wherever it might be so it's a little bit more popular and a little bit more widely available? Does The Devil's Carnival, absent a third film in the trilogy after that spiral money, does The Devil's Carnival um, have audiences yet to discover it? And do you think it's only going to only grow? It's, it's available on streaming. So the question of how does it get distribution is, is theoretically answered. Yeah, I, I think it's a hard one because we're talking about horror musical and for everything we've said and gushing about horror musicals internally on the podcast. I don't know if that's felt in the same way outside and it's hard to win people over with an indie horror film to begin with. I think it's even harder to win people over and say like, it's an indie horror musical. I think you, you kind of cut off a little section of the horror fandom. there doing that. So like to find its audience, I think it has to do what BJ was talking about with uh, repo when they did the road show. And I remember actually going to the road show, I think for both devil's carnival and devil's carnival. Uh, Alleluia because I covered the second one and like talking to Darren Lynn Bousman at Alleluia and all these ideas he had for the next one. And I, again, I'm, I'm going to say we're covering the next one on the podcast as well, just so I don't get into it further and I'm making you watch it, Monocle. Um, That's fair. But, I'm in. But to, to get to the answer to your question and all that is like they I think they did everything right that they had to do. Like they took the show, they turned it into a roadshow format. They made sure everyone that they wanted to see this movie did to start to get a groundswell of kind of appreciation and support. And I, I, I just think the fact that it hasn't yet, you have to either bring that element back to theaters. You have to get people involved and loving it and energetic in person um, versus like it going on shutter or something like that. I, I don't know if this has a streaming life where it gets re recontextualized and like retaken out of the grave, so to speak. Um, I, th- I think we might've passed that, which is sad because I so desperately want a third movie so bad. I have a theory and this is a very bleak theory. So after Paul Servino passed, I do know there was a big boom of people watching these movies because a lot of them didn't know, like genuinely did not know that they existed. Alleluia, the devil's carnival, the sequel 
has some bigger n- names in it from the world of Broadway in particular. Um, we have Barry Bostwick, who is Brad in Rocky Horror. And there's also Ted Neely, who is Jesus in Jesus Christ Superstar. If either of them die, <laughs> I think people are going to do these big career lookbacks of everything that they've done. And because they are both so well known for being in musicals, then that will draw people to go, what is this devil's carnival thing they did? How did I miss this? And I think that's going to pick up more interest. And I hate that that is the reality because I agree with you, Donato. I think that this is a movie that is such a hard sell on a lot of people because it does not speak to a lot of the tastes that a lot of people have. I also think it's really hard to get younger generations on this because some of the people in it are problematic now. They're not going to want to support that. So you need something really big and like kind of earth shattering to happen in order to pick this back up. Yeah, because like Repo has a a different kind of style that you can fall back on. And I think a little bit more budget to show what they are giving to the public and like kind of do it visually and say like, you know, it's industrial goth, like you said before, but that also plays into the music of the industrial goth metal in times and it does get operatic, but that kind of musical style versus Devil's Carnival, which going back to vaudeville, going back to very much more theatrical and stage production, like this is so specifically a musical fan kind of movie in a way. And it doesn't have the benefit of being a Rocky horror or, you know, some of the movies I talked about before that blur the elements of like rock and roll. This is so straightforward orchestral and, you know, big band in a way. And you've kind of, you've made your movie and I'm so happy Darren Lambousman got to make his movies, let's say for the, for the two devil's carnival movies. Um, These are just so specifically personal and so specifically in one way. I don't know if there's ever a chance for a resurgence. Mm-hmm. I have two two thoughts on where this movie could fit. One is never going to happen, but it's fun to think about. And the other one is, is a bit more pragmatic. This would make for like the world's weirdest sleep no more style experience where the show just sort of like unfolds and the songs happen in the rooms that they happen. And you either like as an audience go into those rooms and experience them or don't because of its like single location kind of thing. And because of its fun house styling, I think if somebody was like, yeah, we're going to do this, but we're going to do it like sleep no more at 55 minutes. I would be really curious to see if they could pull that off. The more practical, pragmatic answer, I think, is, you know, we are all well-versed in the dark art of SEO. And I think that a movie like this is uniquely situated to benefit from being on a list because it's got, you know, some clear tie-ins about movie musicals, movie musicals for Halloween, horror musicals, things of that nature, like clear keywords that are going to be easy to build an article around. But you know, you think about something like this that is maybe it doesn't have enough star power to, to you know, somebody's not going to pitch in or accept an essay on it because it maybe doesn't have the right star power or the right creative talents behind it, but it'll definitely fit on a list of related topics. People are going to read that list. They're going to go, oh, you know, there's Sweeney Todd or there's David Hasselhoff in the Jekyll and Hyde live Broadway recording or, or those other things that they're sort of familiar with. This is going to be an outlier on this list. This is going to be something that maybe they don't know. And so maybe that's the thing that they're going to watch because it's something that they're intrigued by the names that are involved and they go see that. So I think that this is a good example of when, you know, we shit a lot on like the structure of lists and how they inform film criticism. But I think this is a, an example of how those sorts of lists could really serve a film like this well, because it provides it in context. It sits it next, next to other titles that people do know and love. And it gives somebody a reason and a context for saying, I'm going to go explore this because it's been vouched for as a horror musical that was on a list next to the Phantom of the Paradise. 
yeah, why not? I'm going to, I'm going to give that a shot. I think that that's, that's a really good point. And honestly, to your first point, I don't think that that's super outside the realm of possibility because Darren Lebowsman has done immersive experiences before, um, like those sorts of haunts and things. Um, mm. I think, was he behind the tension experience? I think so. I could be wrong. It might be a different one, but I know that he did something, uh, that was very immersive, like, like a scare me and, um, or a don't, don't sleep. Uh, but I know he has a, he has a pretty big background in VR uh, yeah. over the last five, 10 years. So yeah, certainly. yeah. So I think, I think he could do something like that, whether or not he, wants to pursue that after being, you know, burned so badly, uh, is, you know, to, to be seen, but I really hope that he gets to do a trilogy and if not a trilogy to do another musical, because we deserve to have more of them. And I know that they're hard because it's writing music is not easy and recording it is even harder for a movie, but, oh, we need it. We need it so bad. And these make it look easy, which is the reason why I hope Darren and Terrence get to get together one more time for whatever it is. Uh, mm-hmm. I've seen horror musicals that aren't as easy coming, let's say, and, you know, that are a lot rougher and for as rough as the Devil's Carnival can be budgetarily. I think the music still sings uh, and save for maybe one or two songs that for me don't work for my own personal preferences. But the fact that it comes so easy to them and that it comes off the screen and it just glides, I I do hope I get my three. Uh, I, you know, again, RAP Paul Servino, like it's tragic that he won't be able to be God in it, but I think they can handle that still uh, with the star power that's still there. And if it's not that I would still be first in line for another musical from the duo. Mm-hmm. I like it. Well, that's it. We have, we have convinced you uh, to go out and watch the devil's carnival on Tubi or Pluto. And we have explained what you need to do in order to make this film uh, give it, give it the moment in the spotlight it deserves, and get a third movie. If, if not for me, because I haven't seen the second one yet, but definitely for BJ and Matt, let's, uh, let's let that change.org petition start right here today. BJ, I want to say thank you so much for joining us again on the podcast. It's been great to have you back, and it's been really fun to talk musicals. I don't feel like that's something we're going to get to do very often <laughs> on, on this particular themed podcast. So it's been fun for me. Uh, where are some places that folks can go to follow your writing, to see what you're working on, just to get a, a, a feel for what's going on in your world? Sure. So everything that I do, I tend to share on Twitter. So at BJ Colangelo, easiest way that you can find me. Uh, my podcast is This Ends at Prom. It is a coming of age podcast about teen girl cinema uh, with my wife, Harmony, who I know has also been on your show. So mm-hmm. definitely give us a listen there. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and then one thing that I feel is kind of fitting to plug is I was recently a guest on the podcast More Than Tracy Turnblad, which is a podcast specifically assessing uh, fatness in entertainment, uh, namely theater and definitely a lot of musicals. But I was asked to come on and we broke apart the theatrical stage script for The Whale and talked about how who that script is. Ooh, who, 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 mm-hmm. how that script is. Um, so it's a two and a half hour podcast. It is a trek. It is cathartic. It is depressing. But if you have ever been curious why, um, art matters and why representation matters and you haven't done any interrogation about fat phobia on screen and on stage, that's a great place to start. 
I would say it's a start there, not with a bunch of 140 character, 280 character tweets. I don't know if that's the most productive place for nope. a conversation where a lot of these are happening. So nope, uh, it because there's a lot to unpack there, and it's complicated, and we get into the complications, and uh, you know we use the script. It's not speculatory. We're using their words. <laughs> Donato, as for you, where can people go to find all of the film festival coverage you've got coming up? You can find me, as always, at uh, Donato Bomb on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram. As Mr. Mongol said, plenty of festival coverage coming and just the regular reviews of things like Spirit Halloween and The Munsters. So watch out for a shit ton of work. I don't know how I'm going to actually accomplish. It's fine. You'll, you'll, you'll collapse and get a tattoo and come back stronger than ever. As for myself, you can follow me on Twitter at Matt Monagle. Um, please do consider visiting certifiedforgotten.com. We've got a lot of really fun articles coming up, especially in the month of October. It's going to be Halloweener again, which is our opportunity to write or to publish writing that kind of hits the intersection of horror and sexuality. It's a very stupid name, but the articles are very smart, which is kind of the best place for Donato and I to live. As a reminder, if you would like to support this podcast, we are going to be relaunching our Patreon at the end of this month, which means we're going to be talking about it a hell of a lot more. And we would encourage you to share what you read at the website, You know, get people excited about what you're seeing. If you are a patron, thank you so much. We appreciate your support. And I guarantee you every dollar you spend goes right back into our writers. So other than that, I think that is all the plugs that we have to plug. BJ, I'm just going to go ahead and commit you to coming back for like, I, you know, Donato and I were like, should we, you know, who will get for the no, We're just going to bring you back. We're going to talk about Hell the sequel yeah. to this. We'll bring you back in a, in a couple of months when we've managed to get a few other guests off the list. And then we're like, all right, it's time. We've got to do this again. Hell yeah. Any reason to get me to talk about Ted Neely is a good way. Amazing. All right, Donato, what's going to be our weird send off today? Evo, Evo. Nice. <laughs>